0: New California case law, new California statutes, that's what I discuss in this podcast. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Ganchi I'm a trial lawyer at Casey Gary in San Diego and I focus my practice on TBI, brain injury cases and trials. I'm also a total nerd about tracking new laws as this emerging and developing info can win and lose cases. Please enjoy my podcast, The Ganchi Law Update, a Casey Gary Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning into another episode of this. This first case that I'm going to talk about is a big one in California. It's called Tanzavati versus City of Rancho Palos Verdes. Sometimes in the legal system, we have courts that disagree on how to read, understand, and interpret the law. And I know that you're saying, I know, I know. It's shocking to think that lawyers and judges may somehow find a way to disagree with each other, but it happens, I'm, I'm here to tell you. <laughs> well, from this April 27th, 2023 decision, Tanzavati versus City of Rancho Palos Verdes, cited as 14 Cal 5th, 639, which is cited in the, in the show notes, the California Supreme Court steps in to decide a split of holdings between our lower California courts on whether a design immunity claim in a case against a public or government agency can preclude a plaintiff for seeking a claim when a government has failed to warn of a dangerous condition. As the court says here, the question presented in this case is whether design immunity bars all forms of claims that seek to impose liability for injuries resulting from a dangerous feature of a roadway. More specifically, we must determine whether design immunity is limited to claims alleging that a public entity created a dangerous roadway condition through a defective design, or whether the statutory immunity also extends to claims alleging that a public entity failed to warn of a design element that resulted in a dangerous roadway condition. The question has been on the burner for a while since the California Supreme Court decided the 1972 case, Cameron v. State of California cited as 7-CAL-3rd-318. That's in our show notes also. In Cameron, the California Supreme Court concluded design immunity does not categorically preclude failure to warn claims that involve a discretionarily approved element of a roadway. The ultimate decision of this case is this. We find nothing illogical in Cameron's conclusion that Section California Government Code 8 30.6 was not intended to allow government entities to remain silent when they have notice that a reasonably approved design presents a danger to the public. And with that, this court declines to overrule its precedent in Cameron. So, what are the facts? What happened in Tansavati? The city had a roadway in the city of Rancho Palos Verdes, And the city created this roadway with a bicycle lane that started and stopped and then resumed again later in the road. Decedent was riding his bicycle in the subject road, and then a tractor trailer turned near Decedent and cut right in front of him, cut across the right turn lane at a perpendicular angle, and then the Decedent collided with the truck and unfortunately died from his injuries. The Decedent's mother filed a complaint against the city for dangerous condition of public property pursuant to Gal- Cal- California Government Code Section 835. The complaint alleged that the intersection of Hawthorne Boulevard and Vallon Drive constituted a dangerous condition that the city had created or allowed to be created under Section 835. And here's the main issue in this case. The complaint further alleged that the city had provided inadequate warning of dangerous conditions not reasonably apparent to motorists for those driving through the subject intersection. And thus starts the litigation tied to the city claiming design immunity. The city filed a motion for summary judgment arguing that it had a complete defense to the action for design immunity under government code section 830.6. And the plaintiff disagreed with the city, saying, citing Cameron, Tanzavati separately argued that even if the city had demonstrated it was entitled to design immunity, that immunity did not apply to her claim that the city should have warned of the dangerous condition, since it was not reasonably apparent to a bicyclist and thus created a concealed trap. Procedurally, the trial court granted a motion for summary judgment in favor of the city and the plaintiff here appealed. And citing Cameron, the appellate court agreed with plaintiff Tanzavati that design immunity does not, as a matter of law, preclude liability under a theory of failure to warn of a dangerous condition. So that's the end game ultimately with this uh, Cal Supreme Court decision. But let's get to the analysis. California Government Code Section 835 expressly authorizes two different forms of dangerous conditions liability an act or omission by a government actor that created the dangerous condition, that's uh, 835 sub A, or alternatively, failure to protect against dangerous conditions of which the entity had notice that's 835 sub B. The term protect against is statutorily defined to include, among other things, warning of a dangerous condition. So can the government try and claim design immunity for both creating a dangerous condition and for Failure to protect against this dangerous condition? Sure, they can try to claim this design immunity, but that doesn't mean it automatically applies, especially if we're dealing with a concealed trap. As the court explains here, California Government Code Section 830.8 sets forth a limitation to such immunity. Nothing in this section exonerates a public entity from liability for injury caused by such failure if a signal, sign, marking, or device was Necessary to warn of a dangerous condition which endangered the safe movement of traffic and which would not be reasonably apparent to and would not have been anticipated by a person exercising due care. The limitation to Section 830.8 immunity is commonly referred to as the concealed trap exception. Here the court addresses three specific issues to Cameron. The court says, to resolve the legal question presented in this case, we must answer three questions involving Cameron, thrice questions. First, we must determine whether the, the Court of Appeals correctly interpreted Cameron as holding that design immunity for a dangerous condition does not necessarily shield the state from liability for a failure to warn of the same dangerous condition. Second, assuming the interpretation was correct, we must address the city's assertion that Cameron's analysis regarding the failure to warn claim does not constitute binding precedent or has otherwise been impliedly displaced by subsequent events. And third, to the extent the Court of Appeals properly interpreted Cameron and the decision is binding precedent, we must decide whether there is an adequate justification to depart from the doctrine of stare decisis and overrule our prior holding. With the first issue, so... First, did the Court of Appeal correctly interpret Cameron as holding that design immunity for a dangerous condition does not necessarily shield the state from liability for a failure to warn of the same dangerous condition? The court says here, yes. The Court of Appeal correctly interpreted Cameron as such. This court says, our decision in Cameron expressly limited if the state were able to establish on remand. That the challenge condition at issue in the case, the banking of the S turn and the road in that case, was part of the approved highway plans and thus subject to design immunity. That immunity would not defeat plaintiff's alternative claim that the state's failure to warn drivers of the known danger was an independent, intervening cause of the accident. And with this, the court disapproves of Weinstein versus Department of Transportation in its specific holding. Otherwise, the site for Weinstein, which will also be in our show notes, it's a 2006 case cited as 139 Cal App 4th, 52. However, despite the inapplicability of design immunity, a plaintiff alleging failure to warn of a dangerous traffic condition must nonetheless overcome signage immunity by establishing the accident-causing condition was a concealed trap. The second issue, the city argues Cameron's discussion of failure to warn claims it is non-binding dicta or alternatively, no longer remains good law due to an intervening amendment to um, government code section 830.6. And the court here says, nope, we disagree with you, city. The third issue, the city contends, even if Cameron remains binding precedent, we should overrule the decision and hold that design immunity precludes any claim alleging that a public entity failed to warn of a dangerous roadway condition that was reflected in the approved plans. And again, the court says, nope, we do not agree with you, city. So in closing, wow, this, this has been a substantial discussion such that I need to give a closing to sum up all this law, but it's an important decision, so it's important to take the time to walk through everything. And the court hits with some really big, important statements. These are direct quotes a government entity cannot simply remain silent when it has notice that a reasonably approved design presents a danger to the public. And this closely mirrors how we and our legislature have treated design immunity in the context of changed circumstances. While Section 830.6 protects a public entity's initial design decision, the entity nonetheless remains under a continuing duty to, re- to review its plan in the light of its actual operation. And with this case, every California Supreme Court justice concurred in this decision. What does it take to prove someone's negligence was a substantial factor in causing your harm per California law? June 6, 2023 gave us this filed case, Baby versus Wonderful Pistachios and Almonds, LLC, cited as 2023 WL 3837260, and that was the citation as of June 14th, 2023. Uh, And that will be in the show notes. The main discussion of the case is whether the court improperly granted a motion for summary judgment in favor of defendants, which the Court of Appeals held granting this MSJ in favor of the defense was wrong. But this case also discusses important information in law about what it means to prove the negligence of a person or company was the substantial factor of causing your harm, the plaintiff's harm. Proving this element of substantial factor is required for a negligence case in California per our KC jury instruction, KC 430, which is the the case that talks about substantial factor. I'll quickly roll through the facts of baby, then get into more thoughts regarding the part of substantial factor. So starting with what happened in baby. Plaintiff here is a subcontractor working on a job site, and the job site had issues with birds and bird feces where, gross, uh, where plaintiff contracted histoplasmosis, if I'm saying that the right way. (laughs) During litigation, there were depositions and declarations filed, and ultimately defense filed a motion for summary judgment against plaintiff, where defense is saying, plaintiff, you have no triable issue of fact on the issue of causation, and this case should not even go to the doorsteps of the jurors. That's me paraphrasing. The, court, the trial court grants the MSJ in favor of the defense and the plaintiff appeals, and this Court of Appeals... Holds in flavor, in, in flavor, in favor of plaintiff, saying the trial court erred in granting defendants' MSJ. I guess that was a nice flavor if you're on the plaintiff side. And the court here reasons two main cases: Miranda and Sarti. First, in Miranda versus Bommel Construction Company Incorporated, that's a 2010 case, one eight seven Cal App Fourth, thirteen twenty six plaintiff claimed a fever fungal infection attributable to a construction dirt mound on property adjacent to the plaintiff's workplace. The court in that case held in favor of granting defendants MSJ saying defense proved in their MSJ papers it was only a possibility, not a reasonable medical probability. Plaintiff contracted the illness from the airborne particles from the dirt mound. However, in the second case, the Sarti case, Sarti versus Salt Creek, So 2008 case 167 Cal app 4th 1187 plaintiff claimed a bacterial infection attributable to a restaurant meal, which was tuna and the court here held in favor of the plaintiffs highlighting the connection between plaintiffs, bacterial illness and unsanitary conditions at the defendant's restaurant. The court reasoned the bacteria is not found in raw tuna unless that tuna has been cross contaminated by raw chicken where the bacteria is common. With the facts in Sarti, an investigation by the county health department identified four practices that could have led to cross-contamination of the raw tuna with raw chicken. Wiped-down rags were not regularly sanitized. There was insufficient sanitizer at the dishwasher. Chicken tongs were sometimes used to handle other food. And raw vegetables were not stored separately from raw meat and the court held reasonable inferences drawn from su- substantial evidence are indeed available to show causation. Okay, so the ho- the holding here in Baby is in favor of the plaintiff. The court found Baby to be more like the tuna contamination in Sarti and less like the mere possibilities of airborne toxins in Miranda. So, Now we have all the info about MSJs, dirt and tuna out of the way. (laughs) On to the other stuff about substantial factor and KC 430. So let's discuss what must be proven to prove substantial factor. As part of your negligence case, you, the plaintiff, must prove, one, the defendant was negligent, you, the plaintiff, was harmed, and three, the defendant's negligence was a substantial factor in causing your harm. This is from our California Jury Instruction 400, and then again 430. Casey 430 defines what is a substantial factor by saying a substantial factor in causing harm is a factor that a reasonable person would consider to have contributed to the harm. It must be more than a remote or trivial factor. It does not have to be the only cause of the harm. This is many times what is argued in trials where defense says, yes, we were negligent, but our negligence did not cause this actual claimed injury by the plaintiff. It's like the sorry, not sorry kind of defense in ways. This baby case quotes another case to give more delicious input as to what proves substantial factor in saying this. The substantial factor standard is a relatively broad one requiring only that the contribution of the individual cause be more negligible or theoretical. Thus, a force which plays only an infinitesimal or theoretical part in bringing about the injury is not a substantial factor, but a very minor force that does not cause harm is a substantial factor to me this shows how low the legal bar can be for proving substantial factor in a case and california this california law gives i think powerful language to argue this exact point can you use scientific articles to cross examine the opposing expert at trial question <laughs> mark ah it's a trick question hopefully you did not fall for it Uh, As the answer is, usually in the law, it depends, but let me give you some law, then explain how this 2022 case decision, Page versus Safely Incorporated, cited as 74 Cal App 5th, 1108, gives further instruction. I'll also say this, Page is a case of first impression, so it's an important one to have updated in our legal minds. To start, California Evidence Code Section 721 Sub-B is the main statute on this question that I just posed. This statute reads, if a witness testifying as an expert testifies in the form of an, of an opinion, he or she may not be cross-examined in, the, in regard to the content or tenor of any scientific, technical, or professional text, treaties, journal, or similar publication unless any of the following occurs. 1. The witness referred to, considered, or relied upon such publication in arriving at or forming his or her opinion. 2. The publication has been admitted in evidence. And or 3. The publication has been established as a reliable authority by the testimony or admission of the witness or by other expert testimony or by judicial notice. If admitted, relevant portions of the publication may be read in evidence, but may not be received as exhibits. The third prong of whether the publication has been established as a reliable authority is the main point in this Page case. So let's dive into what happened with Page. The grocer Safeway had a sidewalk outside their store. They painted it with a certain type of paint. It's wet, plaintiff slips and hurts herself and files a lawsuit against Safeway claiming Safeway had an unsafe walkway. During deposition of defense, defense's retained expert on liability, plaintiff, plaintiff's lawyer asks defense expert about the ASTM, which is the American Society of Testing and Materials, guidelines to ensure walking services are slip resistant. And this is part of the depo exchange. Question, are you familiar with the a- ASTM? Answer, yes. Question, and tell me a little bit about the ASTM. What is the ASTM? Answer, the ASTM provides the standard test methods for laboratories to follow many labs that do testing they follow ASTM question who generally well strike that what does the ASTM do generally answer they develop the standard methods question and in the scientific community is the ASTM standards and their methods well recognized answer yes question And do you agree with me that the ASTM is generally founded on good science and accepted in the scientific community? Answer, yes. All right, so then fast forward. We're at trial. Defense files a motion to preclude plaintiff from cross-examining defenses expert regarding the ASTM. The trial court agrees with defense and precludes plaintiff from asking those questions. The jurors find in favor of the defendant Safeway, and then plaintiff appeals, saying she should have been able to cross-examine defense's expert regarding ASTM. The court here agrees with plaintiff, and the court says the plain language of Section, section 721, Sub B, Sub Three, unambiguously allows a party to cross-examine an adverse expert about the content and tenor of a publication, so long as the publication has been established as a reliable authority. For a publication to be the basis for cross-examination under 721, sub-B, sub-3, the statute does not require the expert to have referred to, considered, or relied on the publication informing his or her opinion in order to be cross-examined about its content. There is no indication in section 721, B3, or in section 721, subdivision B generally, that use of a publication established to be reliable authority is subject to any of the requirements in subdivisions B1 or B2. Accordingly, the, tri- the trial court erred in ruling such consideration or reliance by the expert was necessary. The court also analyzes Senate Bill 17- seventy-three from nineteen ninety-seven, which was the State Bar of California, which was State Bar California sponsor- sponsored. The court says this, here the legislative history leaves no doubt that section 721B3 was intended to allow a party to cross-examine an adverse expert about any publication that has been established as a reliable authority, whether or not the expert referred to, considered, or relied on the publication for his or her opinion. The court also discussed discusses the Senate Bill 73 anal- um, analysis along with the Federal Rule of Evidence 803 Sub-18, and the court says, sponsored by the state bar, this provision substantially adopts adopts rule 803 Sub-18 of the federal rules of evidence to permit the use of published treatises and other similar publications, which are established as reliable authority by the testimony or admission of the expert or by other expert testimony or by judicial notice to be used to cross-examine an expert witness, whether or not the expert at, has himself or herself referred to it. So the court here agrees with plaintiff. Yes, plaintiff should have been able to cross-examine defense's expert based on the articles at deposition. But the court analyzes further whether the ASTM is a reliable authority. And again, a piece of first impression for the courts in California. And the court says the parties have not cited any California law discussing the type of witness testimony or admission establishing a publication as reliable authority under 721 Sub-B sub-3. Here, the defense expert testified a deposition that the ASTM is a well-recognized international standards organization whose views are generally accepted in the scientific community. And with this, the court holds this testimony sufficiently established that the ASTM standard was a reliable authority. So ultimately the court holds in favor of plaintiff as far as the law is concerned on these issues. But the court also finds that the trial court's error was harmless. So plaintiff ultimately still loses her case as the court here affirms the trial court's judgment. And that concludes this episode of the Ganchi Law Update. Thanks for listening, subscribing, and sharing. Please visit cglaw.com for further blogs, case updates, and news about our firm. That's cglaw, as in caseygarylaw.com.